Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, whatever else is happening around the country or around the globe, there's only one big story in Washington, D.C. these days, and that, of course, is the Senate trial of Donald J. Trump. It's only the third time in our history that the Senate has met to decide whether or not to convict a president and remove him from office, and maybe even to disallow him from ever running for office again. For younger Americans, of course, it's a whole new experience. But for some veteran reporters who covered the trial of Bill Clinton back in 1999, it is, in the immortal words of Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. We sat down this week with one of Washington's best-known reporters, authors, and commentators to discuss the differences and the similarities between the Trump trial and the Clinton trial. Eleanor Clift, former White House correspondent and contributing editor of Newsweek and longtime panelist on the McLaughlin Group, is now a columnist and correspondent for the Daily Beast. Eleanor, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Thank you for joining us uh, for uh, uh, a very timely discussion. Let's just break into the breaking news, which is former National Security Advisor John Bolton, according to the New York Times, the manuscript yet unpublished for his new book says that the president told him directly he wanted to hold up the military fund funding for Ukraine until Ukraine and unless Ukraine announced these investigations. How significant is this, do you think? And do you think it could change the course of the Senate trial? I think it makes it harder for the Republican senators to say we're not going to hear from any witnesses. When Bolton has all but asked to appear, he's sent his manuscript to the White House and apparently nowhere else. Uh, the White House could then immediately claim executive privilege or do whatever they uh, can do to shut it down. But I do think it puts the Senate Republicans on trial for a decision to shut this down without any witnesses. And as we're talking here today, this morning, uh, Jay Sekulow, well, actually early afternoon at 1 o'clock, Jay Sekulow, the president's personal attorney, started out saying they're going to present the defense now, but they're only going to deal in facts that are publicly known, and they're not going to deal with any conjecture or assumptions. He, in effect, said they're going to ignore this manuscript that's now floating around uh, Washington. So um, it makes it harder for the Republicans to reject witnesses, but it doesn't make it impossible. <laughs> it's that, that 53 votes they have, and mm -hmm. they can lose three votes and uh, three likely senators led by Mitt Romney, who has nothing to lose. Uh, but 
I think there's a small opening that maybe witnesses will be called or their witnesses will be called and there will be legal maneuverings. We mm -hmm. may never hear from any witnesses, right. but uh, short of that, this trial is likely to be over by the end of the week. So, um, I mean, this is, in, if you take it at face value, some people have said the missing link. You know, the witnesses in front of the House said, we were told OMB said, the president said this, or so-and-so said, this is coming from Trump. But none of them had talked directly to the president and heard directly from the horse's mouth, yeah. this is being done because of this. That's what This is the firsthand uh, credibility that the Republicans have been saying the Democrats lack. But right. now the president immediately on his Twitter feed said this never happened, and uh, he raises a legitimate point that uh, John Bolton never said anything about this when he left in a in his, uh, really, he was fired, basically, and he had every reason to speak out, and so the president is saying he's doing this because he's got a book out, he's got a book coming out, and he wants to make money. And uh, that's an argument that the president's supporters can latch on to, and it may be just enough cover for the Senate Republicans. But I do think there is some uh, danger uh, to them in the sense that more information is going to keep coming out. Right. <laughs> John Bolton's book will come out. Um, there's nothing to stop him from having a press conference. I wish he'd do that. But That's what I was going to ask yeah. you next. He's got something to say, he says. Mm -hmm. His attorney says I, he's got something to say. He said he would testify if invited or if by subpoena. Right. If he's got something to say, why doesn't he just hold a news conference tomorrow morning and tell the world? I I think it's probably he because could. yes, he could. I think it's probably because he he has Republican DNA and there's something holding him back that he doesn't want to go full anti-Trump is what it would appear. So he's playing Coy. He wants to have a life in Republican politics, I guess, after Trump, if there's an ever after Trump time in our lives. Right now, Trump feels like forever. Mm -hmm. He's so dominant in our lives and news coverage every day. Well, it's interesting you say that because really, if there's anybody who's part of the Republican establishment, it's John Bolton, not Donald Trump, right? I mean, you would think well, if he is one that the establishment Republicans might rally behind and say, no, this man's been around for a while. He's been in the White House before. He's got, he was National Security Advisor. You know, well, it's how you define establishment. to the UN. Yeah, he's a, he's a hardliner. He's on the right. And, you know, when I think of uh, the George H.W. Bush Republican Party or the Reagan Republican Party, he's not part of them. But he is part of the new Republican Party. George W. Bush appointed uh, him to the uh, UN position, and he did it when the Senate was on session because they couldn't get the votes to do it. So he was an interim uh, right. appointment, which is interesting. And when Trump appointed him, it's well known that Pol Bolton would like to uh, have regime change in Iran, and, and Trump was saying he wants to get out of the Middle East. It didn't seem like they would have beating mm -hmm. of the minds on issues. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, Bolton is one of them. <laughs> this is not like one of these foreign 
policy professionals from the State Department uh, opining in right. a in a hearing. Uh, this is somebody who was right there on the inside, um, who was a part and parcel of everything the president did on national security for a period of time. So let's back up. We heard, we've seen the Democrats now, three days, they presented their case. Overall, how strong a case do you think they presented? I thought they presented a slam dunk case. Uh, I think they proved uh, with everything short of that absolutely direct testimony from one person to Donald Trump and back that what happened was the president withheld this critical aid from an ally in a shooting war with Russia because he wanted their cooperation in ferreting out negative information on Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. And if they didn't have any negative information to ferret it out, just hold a press conference and say they're conducting an investigation. It was all about um, kneecapping mm-hmm. Joe Biden uh, before the 2020 election. And as I, I look ahead to these next few days, I'm wondering if the president's team is going to be able to accomplish that mission well, they, now. Like, like Adam Schiff uh, said, the f- and I've heard him say this before, the facts are not in dispute. Right. Would you agree? I would agree. I would agree. They, they the, certainly the president's team said, well, there are assumptions and presumptions, and they're trying to read minds. But that they also talked a lot about common sense. You cannot look at the chain of events and conclude anything other than the president really abused his power for personal gain. A couple of the uh, arguments that they make, uh, we've heard them. I'd just like to discuss a couple mm-hmm. of them with you. Uh, the first one is, well, what the hell? He got the money, right. so what? Right. Yeah, he got the money, so what? And um, this president is giving Ukraine more aid than Barack Obama did. <laughs> so, but that does not go to abuse of power and what he was asking for in return. Uh, but that is that is one of their key arguments. No, no foul. And I think a lot of Republicans are latching on to that, saying, you know, you're going to impeach somebody for a phone call? <laughs> you know? Right. And the other, the other argument, which you now hear from Alan Dershowitz, although he said just the opposite in the Clinton years, was mm-hmm. there's no crime. So um, if it, right. the glove doesn't fit, you have to acquit. <laughs> it reminds me of Johnny right. Cochran. Uh, there has to be a crime, and there was no crime committed. But, uh, the, G- the GAO did say the president committed a crime, but that hasn't been heard technically by the House. So therefore, what about that argument, that, that impeachment requires commission of a crime? Well, I remember uh, former President Ford, Gerald Ford, who was, of course, a member of the House, said that impeachment is whatever a majority of the House says it is. And I think people have said you can, you can impeach a ham sandwich just about. I mean, that, I mean that's the way our constitution is written and members of the house have not abused that it's not like they're voting to impeach every other day on policy grounds which president's team is arguing this is a policy dispute no you can't really impeach over a policy dispute and uh, nancy pelosi uh, when she was speaker when george w bush was prosecuting the war in iran there was there was pressure from democrats to impeach him over 
false acting on false intelligence and that sort of thing. And she basically drew a line that that was a, a, a dispute over policy, and that's not an impeachable offense. And the third argument that we still hear and have heard the last couple of days is, okay, we can't defend the call, maybe. Maybe that was inappropriate, <coughs> but it's not an impeachable offense. Right. Which, is, which echoes what a lot of people said, myself included, during the Bill Clinton years. Right. What he I, did wasn't I've been, right, but... Yeah, I've, I've, I've been accused of being hypocritical because my position during the Clinton offense was that what he, what he was accused of, he did, but it was not an abuse of uh, presidential executive public power. It was a personally stupid thing I to have, guilty have for done. I the same argument. Right, and whereas this is uh, clearly about... Um, national security interests. And it also goes to what Pelosi has said a number of times with with Trump, all roads lead to Putin, all roads lead to Russia. And Russia is the beneficiary of any conflict, conflict with uh, Ukraine. And Ukraine is in the middle of sort of a power struggle between East and West. And um, the recent little explosions that Mike Pompeo has had with porters, um, he made the case, how many people care about Ukraine? Right. And I think the Democrats tried to make the point this is about more than Ukraine. It's about Russia and it's about U.S. national interests. I don't know how well they succeeded in, in, in doing that. Uh, but I think the, uh, the Trump team would like you to believe it's about this small country that Americans don't really know anything about, and why would you unseat a duly elected president over this? I think their one credible argument is that we are close to an election, and uh, let's leave it up to the American people. I mean, if, if I were in the Senate, I'd vote to remove him, and my argument would be that he's trying to cheat in the coming election, and you need to get him out of there. Democrats made that argument. But I wish the Republicans would acknowledge that he has done something wrong. And this morning there was some chatter about is there um, could could they invoke a censure? Could they yeah, somehow right. come up with that? I Which don't, was talked about in the House as well. Right. By some people. Yeah, and I, I don't know uh, what the procedures would be for that, and they'd have to kind of hastily do that. And I think the president would not like that. And the president, he, he, he may not have directly said he wants their heads on, on a pike, but— uh, Somebody he, did. Somebody <laughs> did. <laughs> when, you, when you watch what's going on today, you were—of course, you, you, you were here. I was here during the Clinton years. Do, do you get some echoes or some deja vu moments uh, between well, the, the two? You know, maybe I have a selective memory, but I'm, some of the high points I remember— Dale Bumpers, who late Senator Dale Bumpers, who was a senator from Arkansas and a good friend of Bill Clinton and a very kind of a country lawyer, and he said, whenever they say it's not about sex, it's about sex. <laughs> and right. and uh, I look at this team and he they was, say— He was amazing in his yeah. defense of Clinton. Yeah. I remember yeah. that yeah. so well. Yeah. yeah. And I uh, have to say, I don't think any of the House managers were as effective they were all good, as effective as I remember Dale Bumpers. Right. Brilliant. Right, right, right. I even 
did he walk around a little? I, 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 I think Yeah, yes, he wasn't yes. sort of. And again, he was a former senator. He was folksy, Arkansas. Right. Yeah. And, he, that, and that reflects the goodwill that existed in the Senate at that time. I mean, I thought it was pretty partisan and nasty at the time, but compared to today, there, was, uh, there were friendships across the aisle. Um, you did have Republicans voting not to convict uh, Clinton. The Republicans had the majority in the Senate, and they couldn't even get a majority mm-hmm. for conviction, much less uh, two-thirds. And people acknowledged that Clinton was a good president. The economy was going good <laughs> and all of that. And uh, so the, the the context was very different than the bitterness now and the feeling that, you know, Trump is just trampling all over our deme- our democratic forms. And I think, as I recall, maybe the number a little off, that in the House there were some 31, 32 Democrats who voted mm-hmm. to proceed with impeachment hearings. Right, and I was covering the White House at the time, and the, uh, the White House and President Clinton, they were worried it was going to be more. They were grateful that it was, you know, 30-some-odd. So, so very different from today. I want to go back to where we started talking about with John Bolton and um, maybe increasing the likelihood that there might be witnesses called. Since the House hearings, we know we've seen new emails come out. We have seen new letters come out that the House did not have in front of them. We have this rogue Lev Parnas saying that he had direct conversations with Trump, which seems to be buttressed by photographs that have come out. We have a tape recording uh, yeah. that, that, that has not been in front of the Congress. And now we have the John Bolton manuscript. Um, how can they not want to see, for senators who took an oath to do impartial justice, how, how could they not well, open themselves yeah. up to at least hearing from these people? They fall back on procedure that this is the House's job to do the investigation, and it's not up to the Senate. Um, I think it's a very weak argument, and this president's not going to be removed from office through impeachment. I think we, we know that. Right. Uh, but I think the message— is a— Right. Impo- but if the message gets court. across to the voters that the Republicans shut this down because there's information out there they don't want you to know about— <laughs> Uh, I think that's uh, a pretty damning thing to go into 2020 with. Maybe not for the president, but I would think for the the senators who are, you know, up for re-election on the Republican side. Right. I want to ask you about some of those senators, but it, it, do you think one of the goals or the direction that they're getting from the White House is you can't do this because having witnesses means they'll have to review them probably interview them ahead of time. They'll have to look at the documents ahead of time. It could ex- certainly extend the time of the trial beyond February 4, which is right. when the State of the Union is scheduled. So I guess my question is, do you think that's one of the things they've been told by the White House? Damn it, get this thing over with before the State of oh, the I th- Union. Oh, I think um, Trump has said he wants it over by the Super Bowl, which is, what, two days, I guess, before the State of the Union? Or Sunday, yeah. right. Uh, Bill Clinton delivered a State of the Union while he was under investigation, and he didn't talk about it in his speech, and he said the State of the Union is strong and got lots of applause, and his actually his approval ratings were pretty high. So if they do extend the trial, it's not like they're going to be sitting in their chairs for every day. It would There would be chunks of time where it's suspended. Um, 
And McConnell does have a plan for this, and that is that if witnesses are called, they would be deposed in private, probably mm-hmm. in that secret basement <laughs> dungeon, <laughs> right? Right. And um, then they would decide what would be released uh, to the public. And that you're right, that would take time. It could extend it, but I think that's better than, from my point of view, than shutting it down. We're talking with a veteran of Washington author and columnist and pundit and commentator, Eleanor Clift, with the Daily Beast and still with the McLaughlin Group here Mm -hmm. on the Bill Press Pod. We'll take a quick break and uh, pick up on the other side. This episode of the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the Sheet Metal Workers Union, now called the Smart Union. Under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, the Smart Union is one of America's most dynamic and diverse unions representing over 200,000 members with scores of different occupations, everything from bus operators to sheet metal workers, welders, engineers, and more. Check out their website at smart-union.org. We thank the Sheet Metal Workers Union members for their good work building America and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So, Eleanor, we were talking about the Republican senators. Um, The first thing that Chief Justice John Roberts did after he himself was sworn in was to ask all the Republican senators to stand up, raise their right hand, and take an oath to do impartial justice in the Senate trial. Have they violated their oath already? Did some of them violate it before they took the oath? Yeah, except, you know, the Republicans turn that argument back and they say, are any of the Democrats there truly open to changing their mind? And it is a political process. So I don't think you can take the politics out of politics. Although it's a nice idea to have the oath. And 
they all had to sign in too. I mean, I yeah. I oh, was yeah, watching them. The right. I was watching yeah. to see how many lefties there were. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, but I think the Chief Justice is he's not going to overrule the Republicans. I mean, I would like to think that he would make some independent judgments that he would notice when they lie about that secret dungeon that it's just a secure room in the basement of the Capitol that both parties use. Or when the White House lawyers continue to claim that they were not invited to participate in right. the House process, which they right. were, and they just refused to. Right. That the Chief Justice would say, Exactly, exactly. But. No, he has not uh, intervened at all. Still a few days left, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but uh, he is concerned about how he looks, and how the court looks. So he wants to look fair. And at least he did intervene that one evening, late in the evening, when uh, some of the comments on each side were getting personal. This is something that I know most of our journalist friends would disagree about, and maybe you too. It bothers me that the senators are talking all the time. They walk out of the Senate and they give their opinion what they've heard so far. I mean, if you and I were on jury duty downtown Washington, and we went out and talked to a reporter about what was happening in that case. Oh no! We would be thrown out of that building, probably thrown in jail. No, right? you're you're told not to discuss Absolutely. with anyone. Absolutely right. Right. But, and the Democrats and Republicans are just free reign to talk to anybody right. they want to. Not on the floor, obviously, but right. when they walk out. Well, there is a C-SPAN camera in there as well, so I guess they feel like they're not violating any kind of public uh, oath. But it does, you know, the the coverage um, does frame what's happening. I mean, it's kind right. of a yeah. uh, chicken yeah. and egg thing, what happens inside the hall and outside the hall. Because we hear every day, we haven't seen any sign of any Republican changing his or her mind, right? It's because they're out there gabbing, you know, all the time. We well, just like to see them yeah. shut up and listen to well, the testimony. I know. Well, Mitt Romney has, he's been pretty circumspect. I mean, he's probably the most likely one to actually <laughs> vote to have uh, some witnesses called. Well, um, on that point, um, you know, the famous statement that was made by somebody that Republicans know if they vote for witnesses, or certainly if they vote to acquit, their head's going to be on a pike. Right. Now, I believe somebody did say that. But some of these senators must be living in fear right. of showing any right. disagreement or any distance between themselves and the president. Yeah, right. But they don't. But they don't like to be held out for that because it makes them look cowardly. Uh, but in fact, I think it's pretty well known that the president has threatened to withhold uh, funds from. You know, he has control of a lot of campaign funds through various super PACs, et cetera, to withhold them from senators who uh, bolt. And then those who are still facing primary challenges, uh, the president basically suggests that they could they could face an instant challenger. So yeah, I've never seen a president who has this much sway over his party. And it's it's a minority party, too. <laughs> Uh, but they are so, it, well, I'm not the first one to use the phrase cult. They really is cult-like. Which of the senators you mentioned, Mitt Romney, um, Susan, Susan Collins. Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Why not Lamar Alexander? 
Um, I wrote a column for the Daily Beast a couple of months ago about Lamar Alexander and what a disappointment he has been. <laughs> um, and I basically came to the conclusion that even though he's an institutionalist, he was former Secretary of Education in the George H.W. Bush administration, right. and he's kind of a courtly Southerner, that he's been a Republican all his life. He doesn't want to go back to Tennessee and have his party hate him. And Tennessee is a very red state now. So, but, you know, he, he's someone who you would think knows better and knows the kind of behavior this president exhibited in office should not be rewarded with an exoneration. But he may uh, end up like Jeff Flake or Bob Corker, right? Retiring and yet still not willing to right. cross Donald right. Trump. And it's not like they're even going to run for, they know they can't run for, re, uh, for another election. So, you know, why not? But I guess nobody wants to be you know, voted off the island, I guess, is how right. I would put it. <laughs> you said earlier, and I would agree, that the chances are probably impossible, certainly very unlikely, that the president's going to be convicted. There may be a few Republicans, maybe a couple of Republicans at most would vote to convict him. Right. What impact, if any, do you think that will have in November? Let's assume he's acquitted. First question, what impact do you think that would have, if any, on the November 2020 election? Well, Charlie Cook, who's a, a very good political handicapper yep. here in Washington, says that uh, the president has a firm hold on his base, but there is that sliver of Americans that we call independents, and uh, to win, he would have to win two out of three of those, which is a pretty high mm -hmm. bar. But he was elected with 46.1% of the vote, I think, and he he doesn't have to win 50% because of the way of the Electoral College. So it's kind of stacked for him to win re-election. But um, those independents and what I would call some of the softer Republicans, don't you think it will give them pause to give him another four years after he's been impeached and after more evidence is likely to come out uh, through the year? So I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, he will take a victory tour that he's been exonerated, well. But this is a stain on his leadership. Well, that was my second question, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about, is what, how Donald Trump will react to acquittal or non-conviction. You know, it's not the same we know from O.J. that he's innocent. It just was right. not convicted. Right. I mean, he will, it'll be no collusion, no corruption, no nothing, right? Right, exactly. But um, Nancy Pelosi said he, he's been impeached and he'll be impeached forever. First line of his uh, obituary. And uh, he knows it's not a good thing. So, and I, I think the voters know it's not a good thing either. You and I um, have done a lot of TV things together. You were a frequent guest on Crossfire. We were there mm -hmm. with Pat Buchanan and Bob Novak. And uh, I... The tape was circulating last week online. Pat and I interviewing Mitch McConnell, Lindsey oh. Graham. They were all on there. Right. It's a different. It was a different Republican Party back. What happened to the Republican Party that you and I knew in Washington? Doesn't um, exist anymore, does it? No. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan gave uh, the far right a seat at the table, but he didn't give them veto power. And I think. Uh, those elements in the Republican Party uh, grew, 
grew to dominate, and they really have become the party of exclusion. Um, their positions on, on immigration and on some racial issues are really, um, they're shameful. And um, I don't think they know how to get out of this spiral. They've just gone further and further to the right. And if you don't get far enough to the right, somebody, there's somebody else further on your right to go after you. And the Democrats have moved to the left, but not nearly to that extent. I see that Ezra Klein has a book out on uh, how did we get here. He's got a lot of uh, philosophical theories about how um, our um, various identities, if we have multiple identities and they cross party lines, there's much uh, there's less likelihood of any kind of civil war. But if we have identities and they stack up and they put us firmly in one side of in a tribal corner, uh, it's very hard to overcome them, and it's very easy to tweak all those differences. And so you've got, you know, if you, you, you can look at people now and say, if you know, if you live in a city, you don't go to church, um, you're a person of color, okay, you're a Democrat. If you live in the mm -hmm. suburbs and you're white and you make a lot of money and you're a man, uh, you like guns, <laughs> you're a Republican, that we've gotten too good at sorting ourselves into the these various identity, categories. Identity politics. Yeah. And I've had some Republicans tell me, um, some who were invited to but didn't want anything to do with this Trump administration, um, but, but, but I guess you and I might call establishment Republicans, that they feel the party could recover if Trump is only there for four years, but if, if he's there for eight years. Mm -hmm that old Republican Party. The party of Ronald Reagan, in fact, Yes, but gone. remember Reagan started his 1980 campaign in Neshoba, Mississippi, yep. a highly unlikely place to start a national campaign. It was where the civil rights workers were yep. murdered. And he talked he about sent, states' rights. That's right. He sent messages. Ah, yep. Now, they, they, this, the party that used to send messages that they thought were kind of discreet, they're now shouting them over a bullhorn. <laughs> and so... They've really cornered themselves, and they've uh, made it impossible for a lot of other people to become Republicans, young uh, people in particular. I want to touch a couple of uh, on a a couple of other issues before we uh, we wrap up here. One is, I don't know, what is it? Maybe fifteen years ago, you wrote a book called "Madam President." <laughs> yes. So here we are this year, and it looks like it didn't happen in twenty sixteen, mm -hmm. and now Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar are still final contenders in the Democratic primary, mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like this no. could be the year either. Did, how no. do you feel about that? The opening, the opening chapter of that book was Hillary Clinton deciding to run for the Senate in New York, a state she'd never lived in. And of course she won and she won big and she got reelected and she went on to run for president. And we, we don't want to rehash the 2016 campaign. Uh, I think you know Democrats are really concerned about beating Trump. And um, however many times you say, but Hillary won the popular vote in 2016, there's this lingering fear that you don't want to serve up a repeat of 2016 and maybe we ought to stick with a more familiar figure. So I think Elizabeth Warren is very impressive and she got the endorsement of both the New York Times and the Des Moines, and the Des Moines. paper. Right. But um, everybody still worries about her electability. and. The, the senators who are up for re-election um, in those swing states, if you talk to the people who are trying to, cha Democrats trying to challenge them, I don't think they're that eager 
to have Elizabeth Warren on the top of the ticket that there's a fear that somebody that far left can't win in this country. Right. Uh, and, um, and again, Elizabeth Warren did very, very well. Now she started though to flag now and Bernie is surging, uh, Bernie Sanders. And then Joe Biden has remained either at the top or very close to the top. And so it looks like it could end up once again in the Democratic primary being between right. two older white men. Right, exactly. I prefer to think of it as a, a former vice president and a socialist. <laughs> However much I uh, admire Bernie and all he st has stood for all these years, I'm very uh, nervous about him as the standard bearer. Uh, and finally, I want to ask you about the McLaughlin Group, which uh, mm -hmm. had many, many good years under the good Dr. John McLaughlin. Uh, and with his passing, we thought the McLaughlin Group had disappeared, but it is back in another form. So where can people find it, and, uh, and, and, and who's on it? In Tell this area, it. it's on uh, Maryland Public Television, which is Channel 22, and they're making it available to PBS stations around the country. So people should check the local PBS station. Yes, and Tom Rogan, who uh, did the show towards the end of John's reign, uh, he, he, young guy with a, a British accent. He's an American, but he grew up in the UK, and that British accent is makes everything sound, you know, so much better. I, I laugh. He's got. He speaks the Queen's English. So do I. I'm from Queens, New York. <laughs> so, and then Pat Buchanan is still on, and uh, Clarence Page, uh, with the Chicago Tribune, Pulitzer Prize Prize winning columnist. And then we fill the fourth chair usually with a wingman, a wing girl, wing woman, <laughs> for uh, Buchanan, somebody on the right. Right. Not that Pat needs any help on the No, right. he doesn't, actually. <laughs> right. No, but I, I, even after all these years, it is so much fun to see you tangle with Pat, the two of you who have done this for so many years. I know. But thank God you're there. Right. Right. <laughs> well, well, as you know him well, he's, he's a very good guy. How can he believe all that stuff? <laughs> uh, he probably says the same thing about me. I, I know he says the same thing about me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've known him, known him for many years. And uh, yeah, he's fun to be around, but oh my God, just <laughs> <laughs> his politics is way out there. Eleanor Cliff, it's good to see you. Thanks for spending time with All us. Right, thank you. And that's it for today's edition of the Bill Press Spot. Thanks to Eleanor Clift, and thanks to all of you for listening, for joining us. It's good to have you with us. Now, please, we remind you every time because it's so important. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod, and you can do so quite easily by just going to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn, wherever you go for podcasts. Click on the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And while you're there, to really put a smile on our face, please give us a big five-star rating that really helps our outreach to many, many more Americans every week. Remember, you can follow me, and I hope you will follow me, on Twitter, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod, to get my daily tweets and also to get any notice about any upcoming edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for being with us. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.